I believe in order to access the internet, you need some kind of silicon, laptop, cell phone, infrastructure, mobile infrastructure, some kind of you know wireless infrastructure, some kind of servers, some kind of cloud. All of that is built on a single technology today, semiconductors. So if you believe that internet is a basic human right, I would say semiconductor by definition is also a basic human right. Because if you deny semiconductors and they say, well, yeah, yeah, we believe everybody should have internet, yet this nation or that nation will, we, we will not let them have any semiconductors. Well, if that is the case, then you're automatically saying that we are not let them have any internet. Dr. Sharwani, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. So it's a really fascinating time in tech right now. And one of the hot topics is the ongoing shortage of semiconductor chips. I think in the last month, we heard that some of the car manufacturers were going to shut down plants anywhere from a few days to a week. So it's really affecting real world circumstances. So as a leader in the industry, what do you make of all of this? Well, there are several reasons uh, why, why we have shortages in that particular area of semiconductor segment. And some have uh, to do with the demand. Certainly, the electric vehicle demand has gone up, and which is you know a good thing. <clears throat> we all think it's a great thing. But I think more than that, the, the car manufacturers typically are very used to buying uh, commodities in bulk. They buy things like steel, rubber, other things. And Many of those things have com complex supply chains, but not as complex as a semiconductor supply chain. So when these same commodity managers try to use similar kind of techniques to get semiconductors into their supply chains, I think they realize that the ordering system is much different, much longer. Planning is much difficult, much harder. So I think this industry is just beginning to learn how to order very complex parts like semiconductors. I think in time it will get better, but that's one reason, the supply chain complexity. Second is the increase of the demand for EV. The third, of course, is that because of uh, trade war, many large companies are hoarding. They're trying to hoard. They don't know which parts will be available, which parts will not be available. So what they are trying to do, they are trying to order extra don't know where the war will end up. So they also created disruptions in the supply chain by forcing factories to build parts they want. As a result, that capacity was taken away from other parts. So that is another disruption of the supply chain. So there's and, and a, this a is for so this is and and but it sounds like these problems are for more than just cars. It sounds like they're for many, many products. Yes, but the the many products uh, like cell phone makers and laptop makers and server makers are used to the complex supply chain of semiconductors. The difference here is the car makers may not be. and But but this is not something very complex. They will learn. And then, of course, the trade war is not hopefully forever. And so disruptions caused by that will hopefully go away. So I, I don't, nobody in semiconductor business thinks this is a long-term problem. We think this is a short-term problem and it will be, you know, within a year, uh, year and a half, we should be able to get on the other side of the supply problem. So a lot of the news was covering this as 
a problem caused by COVID. You know, car makers can't get enough chips to make most of their cars, so they don't have to focus on a few things. Yet another casualty of COVID. Would this have happened regardless of COVID? Yeah, I don't think COVID has much to do with it. COVID has impact on everything. There's no doubt about that because supply chains are disrupted all over the world. But semiconductor supply chains, I don't think factories are reporting that their output has dropped off. I don't believe that is the case. So I think the other reasons that we discuss are more relevant than the ones that we talked about. So maybe this is a good time to take a step back and talk about what the value stream is for going from chip design to ending up in a final product. That is, how does uh, a chip go from a glimmer in Tip Cook's eye to ending up in the latest iPhone? Well, I, I think it is very, very complex system. When it started in 1940s or 30s, probably it was very simple, but I think in last 30 years, the th- kind of semiconductors we make today, the kind of chips we make today, from the conceptual of concept of a chip through its design phases, through its manufacturing, testing, deployment to the systems that go along with the software development into uh, things like a cell phone. We estimate that it goes through about 1,000 steps, go through about 50 countries, cross 70 borders. And, and most people are not used to, most countries and most nations, most planners are just not used to this kind of a very complex supply chain which spans the entire globe. So that's why people talk about, well, we will ban this country and we will do this and we shut down this factory. Uh, all of that is quite meaningless when you're looking at some things which do span over you know, so many countries and has so many steps, very complex steps. I think I'll give you an example. The wafer we use on which a chip is manufactured, it is, it is a piece of silicon and, and, and we make a, 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 cylindrical, a cylindrical part of silicon and then we slice it horizontally and they miss discs. And many of you must have seen these discs, we call them wafers. These discs have to be pure silicon. And when we say pure silicon, this is what it means. It has to be 99.99999. There are five nines after the decimal point, pure silicon. The total width difference, in other words, if you look at the planetary uh, how plain that wafer is, sometimes it is required that it should not be the the entire mountain, the height of a mountain, height, height of, of any bump should not be more than six atoms and height of any valley, depth of a valley cannot be more than six atoms. So the total from the depth of the valley to the height of the maximum mountain on that wafer, which is 99.9999% pure, is six atoms. Now, how many people, how many human beings on this planet Earth comprehend this statement I just made? The measuring system for these heights is itself is incomprehensible. It's very difficult to even accurately measure and say, testing these things and figuring out, are they really that pure? Is also a science of its own dimensions. So, So my statement when somebody asked me about complexity of semiconductor starting somewhere, ending up in something like a cell phone. It's a very long journey. It's very complex. It has taken us 60 years to get here. And it took several different complex endeavors of human excellence from material science, to software, to electrical engineering, to chemical engineering, to mechanical engineering, to process engineering, to operation support, artificial intelligence, 
I can go on. There are about 30 different fields in here which had to collaborate for the last 60 years to, to where we are. So, so that's I, I just want I want to encourage your viewers to understand the complexity and appreciate the complexity because their views and our opinions matter. Because in order to have an opinion on something, you have to understand the complexity of what you're talking about. Sure. And it, it really is a global effort. But even knowing this and uh, knowing that it goes through 50 countries, is there a possibility for one country or a small group of countries to vertically integrate this manufacturing process and potentially monopolize chip making? Well, uh, anything can be monopolized. It's not a thing that we cannot do. It is too well, obviously, it's too well. But I think the question would be is that what would be the cost of that monopoly? Sure. Right? So there are some industries which have monopolized, right? I mean, fighter manufacturing, right? I mean, there are few countries in the world which make fighters. I believe they make fighters by, all by themselves. Everything they do about making those, you know, fourth, fifth generation fighters is built in those countries. They make a lot of money selling those fighters. But let's say if we had a civilian global uh, development of those fighters, probably take $10, $20 million to make a fighter. These guys make them for $100 million, sell them for $200, $300 million. So I think that's what happens. When you try to limit it and do that, of course, that's doable. The R&D becomes very expensive. The vertical chain becomes very expensive. Right now, what we are doing is that we are doing everywhere things which are cheapest possible and which is the best location so that we can get a cheap cell phone in the hands of poor people in the world. Well, if you do monopolization, then rich people will definitely have cell phones. Rich people will definitely have laptops. Poor people will not have any laptops and cell phones. And that's what a global disruption could mean. It means division, the width between the poor and the rich gets wider. And it could be at individual level, it could be at national level, it could be at the company level. And so, so that's the reason uh, many of us believe that semiconductors have become so essential for life now. They should be treated as like internet. Everybody believes that internet should be available to all humans. Similarly, we think semiconductors are something that should be freely available to everybody. We're not saying the cost, but access to that should be to all nations so that they can you know, use them for the betterment of that nation. So you've previously stated that you feel that semiconductors are the new oil. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So when, not just me, many people say that. And I th think what we mean by that is that when a resource is scarce, controlled by a few nations or people, then they have an ability to utilize that, to make profit from it, and also deny that resource to people who they don't like or who they disagree with on some issues, that can create disruptions, which oil did. So oil has a history of you know, 70, 80, 90 years of disruptions of all kinds. When the countries which have oil, countries we had no access to oils, and countries who paid more for the oils, countries where had cheaper oils, that determined the fate of countries. That determined the fate of industries that determine the fate of technologies. But when it comes to something very basic, meaning like, for example, internet, most people will argue with you today that internet is a basic human right. Everybody should have access to that because if you deny internet to folks, then they will not be able to grow and, you know, 
develop their nation or community or company or, or family. I believe in order to access the internet, you need some kind of silicon, laptop, cell phone, infrastructure, mobile infrastructure, some kind of you know wireless infrastructure, some kind of servers, some kind of cloud. All of that is built on a single technology today, semiconductors. So if you believe that internet is a basic human right, I would say semiconductor by definition is also a basic human right. Because if you deny semiconductors and they say, well, yeah, yeah, we believe everybody should have internet, yet this nation or that nation will, we, we will not let them have any semiconductors. Well, if that is the case, then you're automatically saying that we are not let them have any internet. So this is the reason why we say semiconductor is the next oil, because we feel that it is the foundational technology that will run all the technology in the world, all the cloud infrastructure, mobility, schools, banks, everything to do with communication, entertainment, everything. If it is that central to our economy, central to our life, I believe it is as central as oil has been in the last 100 years. That's the reason why we say it's crucial for human development over the next 100 years. Over the last 50 years, we have seen lots of war break out over oil. Do you think that this is inevitable with semiconductors as well, or can this issue be avoided? If properly educated, no human go wants to go to war. This is my fundamental belief. Humans like to exist in peace. Most humans do. And they will like to find a way that we can all live together in a peaceful fashion. Now, typically, when they feel threatened that, oh, my giving this technology to somebody else means I, myself, or my other citizens of the nation, or my children will not have access to the technology, that creates anxiety, that creates leads to all kinds of apprehension. I think the best way of avoiding scenarios like that is to have a widespread availability of these things. For example, nobody in his sane mind will tell you today that just because your children have internet, it means my children cannot have internet. Right? That, that could be completely insane statement. But yet, suppose that was the case. Suppose Nebraska having internet meant California cannot have internet because internet was made available only to six states in the United States. That, let's say that was the case. Only six states could have it. We don't know which six but the remaining 54 will not have internet. Okay, now let's see how internet will play out. Now you ask me the question, would people die because of internet? I will say yes, because these six states are going to say, heck, I don't care. I want to be one of the six. I don't want to be one of the 54. I think the way we avoided that is that in the early days of internet, we came up with the infrastructure so that we could grow it extremely efficiently around the world. I believe we need to do the same thing for semiconductors. For all foundational technologies, it's going to be like that. Like climate change is an example of that. Is one nation, two nations, three nations can do something about it? Actually not. I think semiconductor should be such foundational technology that we should all share, grow together, collaborate, make sure no nation feels threatened or denied. And they should not feel that if their, nation, if their citizens are not given this technology, they will be left behind or they will have problems in their hospitals or schools or basic facilities or growth of their nation. So I believe we owe it to us, our citizens of the world, that we make, just like we did with internet. I think we did it very responsibly. There are a lot, to be, lot more needs to be done there, but I don't believe that I get up in the morning worrying about 
God, there are some people in Africa who will not have any access to internet. Hence, Africa will forever be a dark continent. I don't believe that is the case. I think Africa has a long way to go, but it will get better. I, I think semiconductors should be seen in the same way. So I'm curious to know, what do you think will get the semiconductors into these countries that really need them, into the poorest countries? Is it have to be some mental or incentive shift on the corporation side, maybe some sort of political action that needs to take place? How do you foresee us getting semiconductors to every single person in the world? I think that first of all, anything movement like that starts with awareness. The countries around the world have to be aware that just like internet, just like clean air, clean water, and other human rights that they have fought for. They will have to also fight for basic technologies. And if they don't fight for those basic technologies, their citizens will not have it. So the first is awareness. So every nation should have this awareness that this is a basic fundamental technology that I should have access to. Second, it starts with education. I think all major universities around the world are now capable of teaching this technology. This technology is now quite fairly available. We are trying to make it even more available as we speak through setup of many open source foundations, education trusts, and many other work that, that's going on. But I think, so first is awareness. Second is education. Third, I believe, is when students go into master's level or PhD level, they should have a way to experience building of these chips. I think that is where I am focused on right now. How can a person sitting in Ghana can imagine one day that I want to build a chip for my community and be able to do that at a cost which is affordable, no cost, a low cost, and then deploy that chip to build some system for their community and solve a local problem. So that's the third step. And the fourth step is then many of the companies in these countries start using locally developed chips, sponsor and support local chip companies to use their chips to solve their local problems. And I think that is happening already. The reason for that is because this entire movement of, of the solution towards the edge, which we call edge computing, is forcing people to bring computing and communication closer to the devices and machines that are connected to the real world and that means thousands and thousands of use cases. That also means that we cannot, sitting here in China or US, figure out what somebody in Ghana needs, which means local solutions will emerge. So I'm very hopeful that I think if you take these four or five steps from awareness to education, the ability of the students and researchers and startups to do chips, and then local development of solutions will lead to wider availability of silicon, silicon solutions, and then it leads to what we call uh, democracy of silicon. So you're the chairman of the Silicon Federation. Can you tell us what you guys do? Silicon Federation is an umbrella group and that was set up so that we can do exactly the kind of things that we are talking about. We can help support open source movement, help support technology availability to various different nations around the world. And especially we are more caring about the nations which are poorer nations, nations which have been left behind. And I think those are the nations which probably need more help and support. So that is uh, another area. And the third area is education. We, we really believe that the first step is awareness, but the second step is education. If the young people around the world do not care about this, they, they do not get involved in that. 
it's going to be a tough road ahead. I think somehow getting the young people excited about silicon, involved in semiconductors, is a very big battle that we need to, this battle of the minds that we need to win and make it as exciting as software, make it as exciting as entertainment and any other field. It is exciting. I mean, I've spent my entire life. I believe there are a lot of exciting problems that are there for young people. We have just not done a good job of getting them excited and telling them more about it so that we can pull them into this field. Well, you're absolutely right about that. I can say that from my college classmates, all of us were obsessed with making tech startups. And when we heard the word tech startup, that was almost synonymous with software. We didn't even think of getting into the chip manufacturing space. We saw electrical engineering as kind of the boring department and computer science as where you could make cool stuff and where you could get rich. Yes. And that's very unfortunate because no software runs without hardware. So you can do whatever you want to with software. Eventually it has to run on some computing platform, which runs on some kind of silicon base, you know, as of today. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is as part of the Silicon Federation, you're trying to educate not only the population, but also these corporations, and you're trying to democratize um, silicon. I'm wondering, isn't the presumption that these corporations don't want to share their patents or their secret technologies because they want to, you know, protect their profits, protect their business? How do you realistically incentivize these companies to basically democratize and open source chip manufacturing and chip development? Actually, amazingly, Open source helps even the large corporations. Because if you think about that, in open source, what is happening is a very large group of people are developing a piece of software or together or a piece of hardware together. But what it does, it brings down the cost of R&D. It brings down the cost of support and maintenance. It finds bugs faster. And as a result, the overall in, uh, you know, path of innovation, speed of innovation increases. So you will see uh, major corporations like IBM, Intel, Microsoft, AMD, they support open source. They would not be supporting open source if they felt that is counterproductive to their corporate goals. They have found out over time that the right mix of closed source and open source is the right way to go. So I think what we need to do is to use that force to our benefit and at least get basic foundational technology in the hands of many people around the world. Now, what it means, they will not be able to make as cool stuff as, as Intel or Microsoft or AMD or Xilinx, but they will be able to make some stuff. And that is okay with uh, these large corporations. These cor large corporations are not bothered about if you make you know, some basic technology or some basic products, they're okay with that because they want to sell high value. So I think I, actually it works that we develop basic open source technologies. Ordinary people, companies around the world will be able to use that to build chips system for themselves. But anything on top of that, which requires more complexity, advanced features or anything else that requires significant more R&D that will be done by commercial corporations. And hence, you will have to pay money to get access to that. And hence, they can make money doing that while the basic technology is available to a larger uh, population. So I think this right mix is there. That's why open source is supported by literally all major corporations today. I think this is very interesting, taking the open source model and bringing it to hardware, because if we look at the analogy in software, 
I mean, you could talk about before open source and after open source. Open source software created a Cambrian explosion for startups and innovation and all of these things. So right now, when we hear hardware, when we hear chips, we think Intel, AMD, NVIDIA. Do you think that open source silicon will create a new era of startups in hardware? Absolutely. I, I, I believe that is inevitable. And I think the major barrier that was in the past was most people thought that it's so difficult to design a chip. It takes such a long training. We have proven all that to be false. We have taken high school students, we are taking university students with three months of training and a passion for silicon. They have been able to design simple chips and they have been able to tape them out. Those chips are back. They have put them on boards. They are actually working today. And, and thanks to companies like eFabless, Google, others, have, they supported these kind of efforts. But more and more companies are now coming forward. You, you will see more and more Students, researchers, startups being able to do this very low cost chips. You're talking about you could get a small chip done for less than $20,000, $10,000. This chip, then you put it onto a board and then you can play with it, do something with it, whatever problem that you're trying to solve. This is not something that is outside the range of most people. So I think we have reached a point where this is doable and it's a matter of now educating uh, people who are interested in startups and young people said so this is an option. And I believe if people get excited about it and, and they see their chips working and, you know, whatever robot or IoT system or some edge computing system they are building, which is doing something cool and interesting, I believe it will lead to more and more people doing it. So I think the lowering of the barrier of doing it, wider education, open source movement, all of that will combine towards more and more people get excited. And I think you will see a lot more startups using this approach to build more interesting and innovative silicon, bring them to systems solutions. Uh, uh, as I, I think that will happen more and more now. What do you think the next two decades of chip development will look like? So first of all, I think that there would be an emergence of new material. I think we will definitely start moving away from silicon. I think we have pushed silicon to as much as we have. And yes, there is a few more generations maybe, but they'll become extremely expensive and probably not viable. But this has been said about silicon for the last 30 years. And every time when you say somebody will come forward, says, okay, you tell me three nanometer is not doable. Let me show you how to do one nanometer. So this I consider that as a challenge statement rather than a disability statement. So I think that will continue. But at the end of the day, I think there are other composite materials that can be used now. And I think material science has made a lot of progress in that direction. Secondly, as the silicon moves out of a box, out of a cloud, into the real life, gets embedded into human body, gets embedded into animals, get embedded into machines, get embedded into our furniture, into buildings, into our lights, into our life. That, silic that piece of computing communication doesn't have to be silicon. It could be other materials, more friendly, easier to process, maybe less expensive to process. Then I believe this whole revolution that is happening in the energy space, that is going to impact our industry quite a bit as new materials emerge, which are a lot more efficient than the standard solar cell based on the PV 
I think that is going to impact. And the third thing is that as I think we start worrying about the remaining 4 billion people, which so far we have not worried too much about, and we try to raise their, you know, value of, you know, quality of life and pull them out of poverty in Africa and Southeast Asia and other things like that. I think that will put an extreme pressure on cost. And I think we'll be forced to reconsider that, you know, how can we build cell phones, laptops, all kinds of other machines and things like that at a very low cost. I think all of that will lead us to find alternate ways of finding computing done with different materials, with different manufacturing processes. And so I, I look forward to the next two decades as a very exciting time where a lot of new innovations will happen and, and we will explore beyond silicon, but we'll also explore how we can power the world without having to burn fossil fuels and, and you know, and currently solar energy already is the cheapest form of uh, energy available on planet Earth today as we speak. Nobody would have thought that possible 30 years ago. It is possible now, but this is the, we consider that still is the beginning. We think we have a lot more to go and the scaling of uh, this technology can help us even get much better. So yeah, I think next two decades are going to be extremely exciting uh, and a lot of new innovations to come in this field. So what do you think needs to happen to get young people, young engineers and young entrepreneurs to be so excited about hardware? I think the first thing we must do is that I think hardware industry has done poorly when it comes to advertise itself. I think most human beings do not appreciate what hardware industry has done for the world. For example, if you were, many people have done this comparison. It is little silly, but true. If you com compare a car industry with, with a chip industry, today the cars would cost probably $2 and probably would run, you know, 5,000 miles on a gallon. Something similar kind of numbers have been stated. I'm just trying to make a joke out of it. But my point really is that that is what we have done in the chip industry. Yet most human beings, if you talk to them all over the world, they will not be even to, able to tell you that, that which industry has done this kind of remarkable achievement in the last 30, 40 years. You ask them, which industry do you think? I would be very surprised if less than 1% people, more than 1% people will actually say, oh, I think it's a semiconductor industry. So I think point one is that we have done a very poor job of we, I mean, hardware industry has done a very poor job of educating the ordinary citizens about what remarkable things we have been able to do and how it improves the quality of life of everybody around the world. I think we haven't done, again, a very poor job of that. Secondly, I think, I believe universities have not done a great job of attracting students because what was happening, that exciting thing never happened in the university. It happened after you joined a company. You never taped out chips in the university. You never built interesting robots other than MIT, Carnegie Mellon, UC Berkeley, USC, and a couple of other universities. I said USC because I know you are from USC. So I said I have to. <laughs> I appreciate I have that. To USC, USC for sure. <laughs> so, so, so my point really is that beyond these few universities, we don't have that cool factor that, oh, 
you can go to electrical engineering department, computer engineering department, somebody is building some robot, somebody is doing some other things based on the chips they have developed. I think universities, and the reason for that was because universities didn't have the capital and funds and things like that. So as a result, and it was too expensive. So I think we are trying to bridge that. And I think the third very important thing is that somehow, at least in few advanced countries, things which are considered complex, like chip design, considered geeky, became non-fashionable. Some 30 years ago, 20 years, oh, this is geeky, only geeks do that. As if, you know, that that is something that we have to, as a society, overcome that. that like, for example, I think Elon Musk has done a great job of making rocketry an interesting field. And nobody says that, you know, it takes a, a rocket scientist to do it. Well, normal, ordinary people work at <laughs> SpaceX and they are doing great. And it is letting other people, there are actually some 60, 70 rocketry companies around the world now. And I think this is, I think that is great. And I think similar kind of step has to be done for chip design where we just make it something cool, exciting, interesting. And I, I think right. that, you know, how can you spend 40 years of your life doing it? I said that the reason for that is because there has never been a single day where I was not excited about doing what I do. Fantastic. But so I have not done a good job of translating that. I've not <laughs> done a great job of telling others how exciting it is. So one thing which I think is maybe quite telling of this is when I was in college, most of the people who are majoring just kind of consider that like their work. But the computer science kids consider that their lives. I don't think there's any other major where people had would have stickers on their laptops for things related to their major, where kids would literally in their free time go to hackathons, would make their friends from other people within their community. Like software engineering at the university level is is a tribe. It's a way of life. I don't think I don't think electrical engineering or hardware or really any other engineering major has managed to get that level of excitement or passion. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that is because the barrier to enter in a software is very low. You have a, If you have a software, you have all the tools. You have a laptop, sorry. You have all the tools that you need. And so laptop and a passion, is that what you need? But in case of a hardware, you need a laptop and a passion and a lab. And I think that is that many universities either defunded those labs or didn't have them or reserved them for only PhD students or master students, and suddenly undergraduate students didn't have access to such labs where they can put up things. And, and secondly, I think open source movement didn't come soon enough where we had tools, software tools to design these chips available. Now they are. So I think increasingly, I'll give you an example. There is a, a lab in Pakistan. It's a small university. It's called Usman University of Technology. It's a very small university. It, it's you if you look at in the even in the map of Pakistan, it will not show up in probably top hundred universities in Pakistan. It's that small. They set up a lab of five, six, ten graduate undergraduate students, two professors, who had a passion to build a risk five processors. On one of my trips to Pakistan, I took the two inventors of risk five with me. Dr. Sanovich and Dr. Lee. And we were giving a talk and in, in my, my university, NED University. These guys came and says, can you come with us? We want to show you something. They got into a car and their university was maybe 30 minutes, 15 minutes away. We went to their lab. It was a small lab. But on the wall, 
they had all these risk five posters as if it, it was like a temple believe it or not they taped out a risk five processor wow. four months ago no resources undergraduate students but based on passion and open source they taped out their chip came back it is the first microprocessor designed in pakistan it's very simple it's, it's, it's not very complicated but doesn't matter they designed it they have it it is working and they are cannot stop talking about it but again they undergrad your students this is what i say now this lab that we have in usman institute of technology can be anywhere in the world how much does and it cost this is why i'm nothing zero cost just your laptops you sit there they just found they didn't the university refused to give them some space so they went to the top level the roof they themselves put some stuff on top to cover it and then that became their lab it was like no air conditioning nothing there but that's what they did but my point is wow with a laptop passion undergraduate student and two professors to guide them they designed the first microprocessor for pakistan now yeah. i am having them design an fpga there are several other universities in pakistan the pakistan is not known for semiconductors just so is neither is brazil neither is chile and neither is many other countries if it is beginning to happen there i'm very hopeful it will start happening everywhere else yeah dr sharani i think you've made a fantastic argument for why more people should consider hardware at the you know high school level university level so if we had to switch topics a little bit i wanted to touch on ai i recently read a book called ai superpowers by kai fu lee and he had a lot of hot takes in that book by the way and one particular hot take that he had he suggested that in terms of ai innovation china is far ahead of the united states so in your experience having worked in china and having worked in the united states would you say that's true is china sort of the leader or the follower when it comes to ai i think first of all when you say uh, ai it's a very broad field right so so there are many different aspects there are many sub segments and there are many fields inside ai right so to i think when you're writing a book and you you are talking to a broad audience i think it's a reasonable comment to make but where i sit what i i look at is i say that what are the leadership in each segment so i think where china has done well is that when a segment has been defined and the path has been made clear and all that was needed was to put in sheer hard work to take it to its logical conclusion china has done very well right the areas where you have to open up new pathways and open up new innovation and things like that where i would think that us has still some lead there so it's a i would not call it a Uh, a one zero win for china i think there are areas where china is winning and there are areas where us is winning and i think it's actually clear why they are winning it is it's kind of a cultural divide the cultural divide is there are things when you just need lot of sheer hard work with innovation and all that that's one and then there is just sheer opening up new pathways and things like that that's a different thing so i think both countries along with others europe is doing very well japan has been actually the original innovator and the sustainer of ai they are doing well and i think i see both countries now catching up in other areas so i i i see a model where 
both countries and another host of countries will do very well in the AI area. So I would not be as blanket as saying that China somehow has a lead in AI. I think there are some areas where China has a lead and I think there are some crucial areas in which AI uh, in the US has the lead. Okay, if I had to give you something more concrete, maybe a conversational AI, right? I think a lot of people want this. I think it has universal usage, potentially. Does China get there first or does America get there first? Probably China. Full self-driving? Probably US. Why do you say that? Because of Tesla? No, 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 no. Tesla is probably one of them. There are many, many folks in US who are making very, very good progress today. And there's an explosion of investment. Universities are involved. We, we have a very broad network of folks working on it and in US. So I would think that probably fully self-driving cars are neither necessary or not needed. I think, I think what is needed is what I partial self-driving. I mean, for example, if we just automate our highways, I think we'll be more than sufficient for the next 30 years and and we can drive the cars in the cities as long as the highways can be automated i think that would solve a lot of problems so i think those are the kind of things you will see earlier in us than you will see in china the width of things is always in china for example if you i i visited a conference about 2 years ago almost by accident where there was a kind of an exhibition or competition was going on where different companies were showcasing their auto- autonomous uh, vehicles from a golf cart to an ambulance to shopping cart and lots of things like that. And there were competitions going on. And that was almost two, three years ago. I did not see anything like that in US at that point. But when I looked at each one of them, each single competitor, I did not see that level of advancement, yet the width was there. So I think this is a width versus depth question. So, so yeah. So I, I that's the reason I think that I have a feeling that autonomous driving is some where US probably will get there earlier than other nations. So regarding ML, to what extent do you think that this is a hardware problem? That is, these thing, innovations you've described in democratizing silicon. How will that benefit the ML space? Well, I think in terms of ML, we have to allocate resources appropriately hardware resources. So what happens at the edge? What happens at the cloud? And what happens to the bandwidth in the middle? There are three fundamental technologies that will play a role. So so you have to have 5G so that you have enough bandwidth from the cloud to the edge. You have to have enough compute power so that you don't have to send a lot of data up and you should be able to do a lot of ML in the edge itself. And then you have to have a fairly gigantic cloud infrastructure, which has to be deployed at a reasonable cost around the world so that you can, the data that does come to cloud, we can infer from it and then we can send it back to the edge. So I think ML is a hardware and a software problem. I think appropriate development of software necessary, but hardware, not just in the compute, but communication infrastructure is necessary to make sure that the ML progresses you know, in future as rapidly as we want it to. That requires a lot of, I mean, if you look at edge computing is already growing at a very interesting rate. It's a $250 billion business already today, but I think it will continue to grow. I've seen amazing demos of agricultural drones making decisions on the fly 
and 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 lot of other things like that and and then I, i think that is very very important that we have those kind of capabilities and their ability to communicate with other drones and then that drone swarm ability to communicate with the cloud i think is very necessary all that is different kind of chips either communication or computing chips would be necessary for ml to continue to grow okay dr sharwani you've suggested some pretty futuristic ideas and uh, products you see happening in the future of the moonshot projects of the unicorn ideas that are realistically possible in the next 20 years what excites you the most i think what excites sometimes means they're already there but i think i would like to rephrase the question is that what i would like to see sure i would like to see global education infrastructure for the world i think i would like to see each human child have access to education and opportunity if we cannot do that as planet earth shame on us because i believe that fundamentally will take world many generations forward if we consider every child as our child every person as our brother or sister around the planet and treat them as we would treat our brothers and sisters that requires creating an education and opportunity network around the world i believe today we have the resources to do that and i think semiconductors and software this is the two fundamental technologies that can make it happen because education is such thing it requires hardware and software and a willingness passion and vision to think of world as one so i think to me the most important thing that we can do for this world and which we should do and i hope to see that we do is that we make education available and consider education as a fundamental right of ever every human being every child that is born on planet earth and then once the education is there then creating opportunities for them also globally so i think that has to be the biggest mega project of humanity for the next 20 30 years because that i believe will bring peace prosperity but more importantly i think we can live without having to worry about this and that and this nation and that line and <laughs> we can all live in peace and harmony and i think that will come from creating education and opportunity for all that's so, a really great answer i was going to say that's a great answer when me and faraz were discussing this exact question when we were prepping we were thinking like you know robots and i robot or like robots that can run really fast and fight in wars but this is a much better answer i mean robots and all those will will happen but i think if as a if we cannot treat all see right now look at fundamental issues around the world they all re- resolve around one human treating another human as not equal whites blacks this nation that nation rich poor all of that if we can just actually start thinking and i always tell people that if i can start thinking that every child is my child i'm willing to do a lot for my children why am i not willing to do it for other people's children because they are other people's children when are we going to cross this chasm where we think no 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 there is nobody's children they are all my children because they are we are living on a shared planet earth those days where we were lived in a cave and i only had to worry about my family or my tribe are long gone but i unfortunately feel that we are still living in that cave we still think there is a difference between a white and a black 
and this nation and that nation. And just, you happen to be born on six inches on this side of the wall, you become an Iranian. And if you're born six inches on that side, you become a Pakistani. There could be a hospital which on this side of the border and that side of the border and, and your mother could have been on either side of the border and it decided your life, it decided your future, it decided your opportunities, decided your education. Very unfortunate. So that's the reason I believe that our goal as humanity has to somehow put this tribal past behind us. And the quicker we do that, the better we will be and better our future generations will be. Unfortunately, most humans don't agree with me. They like to cling on to their tribal past. And, and tribality brings many, many things. But I don't know, it brings some kind of safety or feeling of belongingness to something. But that also creates divisions around the world. And it causes all kinds of issues. And you see the disasters created by those divisions. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think you. I think your mission is very admirable. And I can't imagine that too many people would disagree that it's one worth pursuing. So as software engineers, as people in tech, our audience who's listening to this, what can they do to help this vision of democratizing education and opportunity for people in the world? First of all, I think people who are working in open source are already doing it. By making it available to everybody, all doing that. Secondly, I think all of us not just become students, but also become teachers. Because when you're a teacher, you're a better student. So I think there's so many opportunities now to set up classes where you can start teaching. You know, uh, there was a conference on open source software uh, done by Open Source uh, uh, Software Foundation of Pakistan. 125,000 people logged in. I gave a talk on Risk Five open source technology. 12,500 people logged into my call. I've never done anything that impactful where I was talking to 12,500 people and trying to convince them that they should go back, set up a small lab like Usman Institute of Technology and tape out a chip. Why not? Why would you not do that? Today, all your listeners have that ability. All your listeners have the ability to not just learn, but also teach. So I think that's one. Secondly, I think we should develop an empathy for people around the world. I think that requires learning about other people around the world and their condi life condition. And think, think, how can we help? By the way, I, I must say that for younger generation, I found a major difference between you and us, I refer to as older generation. We were too concerned about my car, my home, my grades, my job, my salary. I've seen already a very hopeful sign in our next generation. Many of your viewers, my own daughter, and all of you guys, you care a lot about the world. You care a lot about planet. You care about a lot of these causes which we didn't care. I'm talking about me as a generation not me as an individual. I think I already see hope. I think you guys are very caring. I think to you, it matters. You guys are on the front line of fighting a lot of the social ills that we have, which we fought, but not with as much passion as you guys do. So I'm very hopeful. I'm, I have great trust in our new generation that you guys have already taken on. You, I think if you dedicate yourself expanding your mission, reaching out to nations around the world, teaching, 
growing people. And you can do that today, sitting in your home. You don't have to travel. Uh, thanks to pandemic, we have figured out how to reach out to the other side of the world. I think all that all your viewers have that power in their hand today. Come teach, join, improve lives of people around the world. The most important it will do for you, it will improve your life. It will make you a better human being. And if nothing else, if only one human being can be made better, I think this world would be a great place. Well, I think that's an exemplary way for us to wrap things up here. So the last question that we always ask is, in your opinion, what is the best piece of software built either in recent history or, or of all time? Well, I think I, sh I, I, may should not, I should not answer this question mainly because I'm not an expert in that area. Uh, I have very limited uh, exposure to software. I'm, a mostly, I'm mainly a hardware person. Okay. But in my life, in, in my life, the software that I have interacted with, I would say that is uh, Linux. Because to me, that opened up a whole field that was probably not open before that. So I believe that has done wonders. And then the entire the software stack that was built on top of that, and that what we see today, all the virtualization that happened in the cloud, I think all of that started from there. I believe that is a foundational piece. And then what Linux Foundation has done, actually on top of that, that whole Linux movement, I would say, again, I have limited knowledge. I think that was one piece of software started and created into a movement has done a humongous thing for humanity. I, I think we cannot be, you know, thank them enough for what they have done. I think Linux actually is a proof of the mission that you're pursuing right now, right? Like no one would have thought that an operating system, maybe the most complicated piece of software in the world would be built for free, would be accessible by anyone, could be maintained by people in Europe, in Asia, in America, in South America, anywhere in the world. And yet they have. So if we and can supported, do an operating system. And supported by all for-profit companies. Right, right. That's is another amazing thing. You ask Microsoft and IBM, do you hate Linux because they are cutting into your profits? No, they will tell you, we love Linux. That's amazing. Nobody would have thought that would be their answer. We would say, no, 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 we will do everything to remove Linux from planet Earth. That's not the case. They are participating in it. They are supporting it. They're helping it. Red Hat became one of the largest acquisition. I mean, I believe 40 odd billion dollars, something, something amazing thing like that. So, I believe humanity discovered something, that there is joy and profit in sharing. We just Absolutely. didn't think that. So All I right. think I, we always knew there is joy. And our mothers and fathers told us, oh, there is joy of sharing. I changed that statement a little by saying there is joy and profit <laughs> in sharing. So that's my only modification to that statement. And I used to tell my mother that you always told me that. But let me tell you something I discovered. There is <laughs> joy and profit in sharing. And I believe that is true. And I, I think because joint collaboration models bring more innovation. It just, it's just not possible for 300, 500, 700 people to sit inside a company to innovate, which the whole humanity can, sitting all parts of the globe can do. It, it's an incredible force that should be utilized to solve all major human you know, problems that we have in humanity today. I think it would be such a tragedy that we did not use the collective, you know, brains of all the human beings around the world. And I think open source is a very good vehicle for doing it. 
I think you've made a very convincing argument for that. I just want to add, uh, Dr. Sharani, I learned a lot. I mean, I'm really not that familiar with hardware. My dad, I'll just quick shout out to my dad who used to take me to Circuit City and uh, take me around the shop and show me every piece of hardware and explain it to me. He himself is a trained electrical engineer. And you try to like enforce upon me how important hardware is. And as a kid, (laughs) and as like, even as a high schooler, I would never pay attention. But now... (laughs) I have to go back to the top. <laughs> you have to go apologize. Yeah, give your dad a call and uh, say I'm sorry. I, I I don't think you need him an apology. I think what you need to do is to assert that to other human beings that how can we learn more about hardware? Because I think when you learn more about hardware, you will also come up with new ideas for software. Because you can say, wait a minute, why we always organize CPUs this way? Why do we organize GPUs this way? Can I discuss? design this FPGA in a different way. You never had that choice. You were stuck with the way the, the FPGAs we gave you. We, well, today you have that power. You can come join our open source FPGA foundation. We'll teach you how to design an FPGA of your own. Then you can write software for it. Now your combination of software and hardware might do 10 times better than whatever FPGA or GPU or CPU that you had before. So I think if we can get folks like you get excited in something like that. Well, I'm going to make my software more powerful by actually trying to fiddle around with my hardware. I think you will find new and amazing areas to innovate in. That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate the support. You can also follow me on Twitter at FZ from Cupertino and Vasanth at NextVasanth. See you guys next week.